Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas. Today, I am beyond thrilled to have Ijeoma Aluo on the podcast. She is the New York Times bestselling author of So You Want to Talk About Race, and she has a brand new book called Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America that's out now that we talk about on today's episode. Reminder, the Stacks Book Club book for December is Citizen and American Lyric by Claudia Rankin. We will discuss this book on Wednesday, December 30th with Darnell Moore. Before we jump into the episode, I just want to say thank you so much to the Stacks Pack. Those are the folks who show this podcast love over on Patreon. They contribute monthly and earn perks like discounts on merch, access to our virtual book club, and a lot more. I could not make the show without the Stacks Pack. And if you want to join this community of bookish people, go ahead and head to patreon.com slash the Stacks. This week, I'm saying extra special thank yous to some of the newest members of the Stacks Pack. Ellen Bolin, Meredith Mineo, Amy North, Janelle Hubble, Libby Gerds, Alyssa Campbell, Caitlin H., Kayla Lugo, Teresa, and Deanna Walton. Thank you all so, so much. And now it is time for my conversation with the brilliant Ijoma Oluo. All right, everyone. I'm so excited. Today, I have Ijoma Oluo on the podcast. Ijoma, welcome to The Stacks. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about your brand new book, which is Mediocre. We always sort of start in the same spot, which is in about 30 seconds or so. Can you just tell us about the book? Sure. The book is a look at about 150, 200 years of American history and the formation of white male identity and what this particular identity has cost people of all races, ethnicities, and genders. You're so good at that. It's like you wrote the book on it. Um, (laughs) I, I loved the book because one of the things that I was so impressed by is how you're able to put so much history and so much both modern and past into this book, you know, in a country that's founded on so much oppression and male white dominance, and you're able to make it both approachable, but also comprehensive. So I'm curious kind of how you, how you approached keeping the book short, but also it's dense, but it's super readable. So like, how did you balance all of that? Cause it's hard to do. You know, I think a lot of it, one was I really did have to do kind of an overabundance of research 
I think setting out and being like, I'm going to write about this and this and this, I think would have, would have left me in trouble. Mm. So instead I kind of had questions about white male identity in America and the history of it that I wanted to find answers to. And so that's kind of what I and my research assistants first set out with was answering these kind of broad questions of like, what did white male identity look like in World War II? Like, what did it look like in these spaces? Asking questions around different industries and pulled together, you know, many hundreds of, you know, book excerpts and articles. And we separated them out into topics. And then as I started reading through it all, I started finding threads Mm. and For me, what the guiding principle for the book ended up being that organized it was that I wanted it to be a story that went through the ages. So I wanted each topic to look at a story that was beyond one particular person, you know, and so that you could look forward and back and see the pattern. And so as I was going through all of this information, I would start to notice how different pieces and questions I had in articles that would pop up were connected to other ones. And, and that really kind of brought it together. And so where I would say, you know what, this, this story here in education, you know, is really being told in this particular time by this one section, I have to find more Mm. and kind of going through and looking and, and finding those connections. So it really started, you know, with this huge abundance of information that actually made it easier because then I could go through and kind of toss things out than instead having this preconceived notion and right. saying, I have to pigeonhole it. I needed the story to come to find me out of all of the information. Right. Are there things given that you had so much research and that you went so wide that you wish could have been in the book that you had to kind of cut out this time and maybe like, a future book might have this crazy story or something. Absolutely. Um, you know, one thing that I wish, you know, that I thought for sure I was going to have in this book and I didn't was the auto industry. Mm. Um, I've always been fascinated in, you know, the auto industry is such a huge part of white male identity in America, right? right. The quote unquote lions of history of, you know, Henry Ford and, you know, things like that. And so looking at the history of that and what that has meant for race and gender throughout time, and I worked in the auto industry for years before I was a writer, um, I could have easily put in, but it didn't fit the stories I was telling at the time. And then I was, I mean, it could be its own book easily. And I I would love the chance to delve into that one day, but that's definitely one where I think of like, oh yeah, I could have, I could have really dove into that and I would have loved the process. Yeah, that's super interesting. I don't I don't know very much at all about the auto industry. So when you write that book, I'll be sure to get it. <laughs> be sure to make it up. The other thing that I picked up on in the book that I both in this book and in your previous book, so you want to talk about race, is you have a really great sense of humor and you're very funny and sort of I don't know, you're so I mean, you're obviously so freaking smart. Like you couldn't write these books if you weren't, but the way that you weave humor into your writing, I'm curious if that's something that you cultivated and you thought I should have this in here because it might make, you know, mixing a little sweet with some of the the bitter medicine, or is that just like kind of who you are? Kind of how does that come to your writing? I think I, I I really think it's part of just who I am. Um, I don't ever, I I rarely recognize I'm being funny. Um, (laughs) You know, I think is like my brother was a stand-up comedian is a comedy writer. Okay. So he's the, he's funny. I see. Right. 
And so there's so many times where I, I don't realize like I use humor a lot or that I conceive humor in things. Right. Um, and, and then I'll write something down. People are like, that was funny. And I'm like, what? And then I realized, oh, okay. Yeah. And I think <laughs> it's a natural thing for me. But also I think because I think if you couldn't see the absurdity in it, this work would crush you immediately. Right. And so many of these things are so absurd. And as I'm observing it, I don't even realize that it's humorous. I'm just like, oh, it's absurd. And then you step away like, oh yeah, of course. So yeah, no, it's, it's almost never, oftentimes I will go back and read something I wrote and I'll chuckle and be like, oh, that was funny. I had no idea, <laughs> you know, and, and it'll hit me, but um, I don't like think I need a, I need some humor in here right now. Right. I think it's how I process. And so when I'm putting myself into pieces, you're going to see how I, go through and, and process these ideas. And I guess humor is part of what I do. Yeah. I, I really appreciate it. I think it's nice. I mean, as a black woman, I feel like so much of the writing on race is so, you know, heavy and so miserable. And I think one of the things that, and we talk about this a lot on this podcast is black folks are often able to find the humor and the joy, even when times are really tough and things are really bleak. And so having that in your writing, it just felt I really appreciated it because it's not as it's more rare than I think I would like it to be as a person mm -hmm. who reads a ton, you know, so I, thank you for that. Well, thank you. One of the things that you touch on a bunch in this book is sort of like the ways in which white male patriarchy, racism, and the, the mediocrity that comes with it is wrong. Like it, it's not a smart tactic. And one of the sections mm -hmm. that I really loved was the part about business. And you talk a lot about how, you know, women are given businesses that are planning, that are already like on the downward slope because some white guy already is running it into the ground. And I just, I wonder if there were favorite parts for you in this book to write about things that you were like, this is my favorite section because they're so different and exciting yeah. and kind of unique. <laughs> yeah, so my favorite sections, um, I would say the my absolute favorite was the football one. Ugh. That to me was so fun yeah. and um and heartbreaking, but like the research was fun, the conversations were fun. Like I was learning so much throughout it. I think that's my absolute favorite chapter. And then my second favorite would be the Buffalo Bill one. Mm. So those are probably my two favorites. Kind of like the book and the book, kind of a very yeah. early and very late. So in your football chapter, you don't know this about me, but some of my listeners will know, I love Dave Zirin so much. He's Isn't one of he my amazing? favorites. I'm obsessed he, with him. He's so great. I, I told him he was the, like my favorite encounter with a white man all year was, was hanging out with Dave Zirin for, for he's months. He's so great. Have you read his book, uh, Welcome to the Terror Dome? No, I okay. should. I mean, it's, I it's old. Articles, which yeah. are amazing. His articles but. are great. That book is super old, but it's how I discovered him in college. I was doing a hip hop class or something. I don't even remember, but we had to write a paper on anything that had anything to do with hip hop. And I had been reading the book. And so I wrote about Alan Iverson and David Stern and the racism and the dress code in mm -hmm. the NBA, but that's my intro to him. And so I'm like a super, super fan and he has a new book coming out. So I'm going to try to get him on this podcast. <laughs> He's so great. He's so great. Anyways, enough about celebrating a white man. That's not really what today's about. But, you know, got to give them their props when they deserve it. Um, one of the things that you also talk about a ton is online harassment. And I love that you took on sort of the idea of the Bernie bro because, you know, the book is 
it's I think it's fair to both sides of the political aisle, if you will. Like you take on Clive and Bundy, you take on the Bernie bros. And there's a lot of very similar through lines through these different kind of abusive things. But how do you handle or take care of yourself and your family and your loved ones with all the online craziness that you are subjected to? You know, it depends. Sometimes it just kind of rolls off like it's not a big deal but my block list is so long like my block list is epic but I also you know have to disengage so Twitter is the one I end up putting in time out more than anything where I will pull Twitter completely off my phone for a month or two and just not be in it because I don't have the energy but also I recognize you know I keep reminding myself there are hundreds of millions there are billions of people on social media therefore you can block whoever you want without feeling anything about it. And so I block people for ridiculous shit, you know, people who just annoy me. I'm like, I don't like your profile picture blocked, you know. I don't care because it's it's surreal to think that everyone could have access to you or deserves access right. to you. You know, I'm not running for office. And, you know, it's not, it's my life. And so um, that helps a lot. And then just trying to step away and limit the time, you know, that I spend in it really matters. But this year I did finally decide I needed help with my social media just because I spent so much time kind of often in a state of anxiety or checking on things or making sure that things weren't going to cause trouble or stress for me that I didn't get to be as uplifting um, of other black women, especially that I wanted to be. So I've primarily, you know, hired help to go out and find cool shit that like, other black people are doing in the world so that I can put it on my page and use the platform for that. And then I'll step in occasionally and talk about things I think matter or talk about makeup or whatever, and then dip out and get back to my life. And that's helped a lot because it, I think I always felt like I had a responsibility to continuously speak on everything because of the size of my platform. And it was really draining the life out of me because I'm like, well, if you have the platform and this big and you're not doing it for that. And I realized, well, I could also just have a platform this big that ups other black people and what they're doing in the world and other people of color. And so that getting help to kind of keep that running while I have to, while I do the icky work of like blocking trolls and, you know, stuff like that um, has, has made it, you know, has extended my life in that space. Yeah. Yeah. Good for you. That sounds incredible. I like feel joy for you in my heart just hearing that, <laughs> that you like created space for yourself and for uplifting other Black folks. That's incredible. I would love for you to talk a little bit about the, um, it comes up, it comes up throughout the book. I think it's probably one of those through lines that you are talking about, about folks who are quote unquote, not racist or aren't racist. Um, and and how they want to not offend people who might be racist on the racist side. So that comes up with Joe Biden. When we talk about the busing, it comes up with Bernie a ton. When he brings up class, it comes up with Harvard. I mean, it comes it comes up a ton and a ton throughout the book. And I'm sort of curious if you could just speak to that. The one thing I would love for people to understand, and I think that if you're looking at this, I think what becomes apparent to me in writing this is... Every time you do that, you're making a value judgment. You are judging the worth of people of color versus the white people who might be uncomfortable or offended. And that in itself is one of the cruelest racisms out there. The idea that you can recognize something is wrong, something is harmful, and then say, 
But fixing that is not worth the discomfort of white people, is white supremacy at its core. And that is what I want people to understand, that that's what really feeds the system. And that hurts in many ways so much more than white people who are just acting out of blind self-preservation. Because you're aware and you know the harm being done. And then you're saying, you're just not, it's not, you're not worth it. All right. And I want people to understand that that's what that is and that it is incredibly cruel and incredibly violent. And that is what hold, upholds our system far more, honestly, than, you know, the white men out joining white supremacist groups right now. And I want, I want people to understand that part of that is their, that what they're fighting for, what they're deciding is worth more than us is bullshit. Like it's the most mediocre of mediocre white men being like, oh, you know, this guy who fails it so much worth more than the potential of this entire population, you know, it's so shitty, you know, and, and, I, and I hope that people recognize that and people do this for gender and for race, right? And we look at even like Me Too, the idea that firing an old white dude who's had decades to abuse women um, is more important than the potential of every woman that he's harassed out of the workspace. Right. Is, is misogyny at its core. And, and far, far worse misogyny than actually the dude who's doing the abuse. Because right. you're aware it's wrong. And then you're like, but, you know, mm, this horrible monster is still more important, you know? And that, that same thing happens with race, generation after generation. Yeah, I mean, this is why you write the book on this shit, because you say it's so damn good. Um, I, speaking of white men who fail at everything, I'm curious, there's not too much of the Trumps in this book. Was that a conscious choice by you that you didn't want to include them? And if so, why? It was a conscious choice by me and one that my editor had to kind of hold me to over, <laughs> over the right okay. because... Part of why this book came about was the frustration of everyone acting like Trump arrived and then suddenly violent white men appeared, right? Um, and and so I knew that you know if this was about Trump, I mean Trump is Trump is a one of the final forms of what we look you know think of when we think of white male mediocrity. He's not the creator of it, and I knew that if it became about Trump, this would live and die with Trump. And I know that white America is begging just eager for an uh, an excuse to set all this wokeness aside the moment Trump is out of office. And I didn't want my book to be a part of that. You know, I didn't want people to be like, oh, phew, thank God that's over, you know, because it's not. Right, right. Yeah. And like, I mean, he's he didn't invent it and it lives on past him. He's just sort of like the mascot of it right now. Yeah. You know, like he's like their their favorite child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, great. I, I'm glad I asked that because I was very curious. I mean, he comes up throughout the book for sure, but yeah. like, yeah. yeah, okay, wonderful. It's not like Voldemort. It's just, you know, and he, and he doesn't have that level of importance, but right. it's, yeah, you know, I want 10 years from now, we're going to be answering these same questions. Same questions. Mm -hmm. Totally, totally. So speaking of that, how does, how did your book change, if at all, from kind of when you set out to write it into what it is now? Um, it changed, you know, in a couple of different ways. One, I think this was, you know, stylistically a huge departure for me 
writing wise, right? So I had a vision for the book and then set out and then it was kind of like, I don't know how to do this. <laughs> and I got really lost for a while and and started overthinking it and started kind of taking listening to advice that was telling me to kind of not listen to my instincts. Mm. And so for a while the book was really lost and and then it came back to itself. And so I would say the book started and ended the same way. But I kind of ended up about halfway through having to rewrite most of it to get it back to where I had to, you know, envisioned it. And it took a couple of people reading segments and being like, "And eh, this is weird, but I really love these pieces. And those were the pieces that I had fought for that I knew, like, mm-hmm. I, had, I, had, I was confident in. And so then as I started to rewrite and rework, I had a blueprint, to, you know, that said, okay, maybe I haven't done this before, but the vision is strong and, and you can do this. And so... You know, for a while, I think there was there was a lot of pressure on me to make the book like So You Want to Talk About Race in a lot of ways, stylistically, especially because it just was such a successful book. So that's not the book I wanted. Right. Like, that's not what I had envisioned. And so getting back to that space and saying, OK, yeah, you've never done this before, but you're actually a good writer and you know what you're talking about and you can do this was tough, but I did it. Yeah, I, I'm glad they're super different because the subjects are very different. Like, it would have been weird, I think, to have a book in that same tone. Right. It would have been like, what's she doing? Yeah. Is she she a white man right now? Like, what happened? Um, That's so funny. Okay, I do want to know how the title came to be. Oh, that was easy. Like, that was, you know, it was so funny because I feel like, you know, I had the idea and I wrote the title, you know, that phrase um, by Sarah Hagee is such in our lexicon. Um, that it just was like, oh, yeah, of course, this is what we call it, right? This is the mediocrity. The the last week, my, my partner helped me with the subtitle because we had, but it was really close. So yeah, I just wrote it. I didn't think it was a big deal. I wrote it down, um, emailed my agent along with the, like, that's literally what I wrote her in, okay. in my pick initially. And she was like, okay, cool. I'm going to need more than this sentence. Um, if you want me to pitch this to your publisher. The sentence was the, was the subtitle? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, literally. And then, um, cause that's what I wrote on a piece of paper, stuck it in my bra, fell asleep, woke up, <laughs> was like, what's poking me in the boob? And I was like, oh, this book idea I had last night after like a bunch of wine. And I emailed it to my, um, my agent. And it was funny because then once we kind of, once it came out as the title, people were like, oh, what? And I was like, what? Were we not calling it this? Like, I don't understand. Right, what, right. What, what's the controversy here? This is what it's called. Right. So, yeah, it was really, really simple for me. Um, yeah, that was probably the first thing I thought of. Yeah. I love that. I mean, it de- definitely does also have that, like, dang, like, because it does feel like you're going in, but like, you are going in. We all should yeah. be going in. Like, right. so it yeah. has. And- Yeah, I was like, oh, we're not doing that? Are we not saying... Are we being nice now? Like, are we pretending this isn't existing? I love this. I love this for you and your book. (laughs) What what is the one thing or maybe two things that if you were like, I want to make sure readers take this away from the book, what would those things be or thing? You know, I think that's going to vary depending on like your race and gender, right? Um, And I think there's segments of the book where it's really clear, like, I want people to get different things out of it. Um, mm-hmm. I would say, you know, for Black women, first and foremost, I want, because that's who I write to above all else. Um, and for other people of color, I want us to read this and recognize that 
we're not crazy. Like, you know, that this is real, that this is actually a system. We're not broken. We're not crazy. This is really happening like that. That to me, um, I would love for us to get out of that and to recognize it because I think it's so vital when something's happening to us to be able to see what it's part of, Mm. you know, and to be able to speak to that. But also I want all of us, regardless of race or ethnicity, to see how we play into and uphold this system. Right. And I would say, especially for white people, that's where the responsibility lies to look at this and say, where are my values tied to this violence and where can I break free? And and I want people to recognize that. And I want people to stop acting like angry white men f- fell out of the sky, right. you know, <laughs> and that's, that's what I hope will right. come out of it. Speaking of audience, you're writing for Black women always. How do you navigate other readers? Do you think though your intended audience is black women or your, or your, the people first and foremost in your mind, how do you think about other people who are picking up the book if you do it all? So there's, there's a couple things I think of. One, I think of who I'm writing to, right? So I always have the person I'm imagining reading. And of course you write to many people, but like you have your imagined reader that I think any writer should have, because otherwise we can really get lost in the, in the woods. Right. right? And then I have who I'm responsible to. And, and that's, the, that's the other part. And so for me, it's making sure that the people I've deemed myself responsible to are not harmed by the work. And those are really the two guiding factors. So where I think about white people, it's often how I'm responsible to populations of color. So knowing like white women are going to pick up this book, how how am I going to be responsible in how I write this to people of color for what white women get out of this book, right? But it's but I don't stop and think how are white dudes going to feel about this book, or even you know like you know are are white women going to get a lot of value out of this book? That's because that's not my intended. Like I want them to read it. I think white women can get a lot out of this. But where I my goals are set is what will serve populations of color and especially women of color. Can I ask you sort of sort of a personal question, but it's from me as someone who creates a podcast and I know that my audience includes a lot of different kinds of people. How do you, how do you check yourself in that process of making sure that you're being responsible? Because I feel similarly that my, my audience that I think of is someone who's similar to me, you know, like I, I'm making a show that I wanted to exist in the world, right. That I would have wanted to listen to. Mm -hmm. And and with knowing that my audience is broad, sometimes I think I get lost. Sometimes I get confused. And so I'm curious how you check yourself and check in with that responsibility. Um, there's a couple of ways. One, I think it's really vital to build a practice of being grateful for people who inform you, right? So setting that up in all of your relationships, not necessarily the responsibility of others to educate you, but the freedom so that if someone spots something, they can say it and know you're not, you're going to take it. I think that's an important step because so often people will be like, I have, you know, native friends, but no one mentioned they had a problem with this. Well, how did you react the last time someone brought you something, right? Like, and so that's vital. And it's something I try my best to always make sure because every time I think and I start to get defensive, I think, I'm sending a message right now that's going to stop someone from doing me the generosity of, of letting me know when I've overstepped or gone the wrong path. But then also it's just, I think it's vital to actually put in practices around it. Like I think it's, there's this idea that we have it in our nature to think of other people all the time. And if you're a good person and you're a good 
leftist or whatever, it's going to come naturally to you. And that's not true. We're all products of a system that will prioritize some people over others, even within you know, progressive circles. So I've had to, you know, learn from doing it wrong, like the steps mm. where I trip up and kind of write it out. So when it comes to writing, you know, for the book, there were things I had learned from So You Want to Talk About Race, where I did it, you know, really well. Like my my chapter on the model minority myth, I felt like for me was some of the better work I had done in in writing from a perspective that didn't overreach and also being really responsible to community and getting follow-up and paid feed, you know, like paid input, you know, and stuff like that. And then I didn't do that as well for the Native community in in my book, right? And for mentions of Native communities. Um, And so like, oh, okay, well, then that means I have to actually be, I have to write a process out. Like I have to... Mm double check these things and check with people. And so that's kind of, for me, it's, it's being willing to go back and learn and say, where did I do good that I want to emulate? What parts do I want to take forward? Where am I tripping up? And then what, what would I need to do to prepare to not trip up in that way again? Um, but that also means that you have to be really clear of who you're responsible to, because you could do that forever and not do anything because you could be thinking about everyone in the world. Right. It's so I, I think it's also clear to be open and say, like, I'm not responsible to white women. I'm not, you know, and a lot of people expect me to be um, as a feminist and I'm not. And, you know, fine. Um, You know, I'm not responsible to like cis abled white women at all. Um, And so therefore I'm not going to be checking in with them the same way. Right, 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 right. I don't have have the time or the energy. And, um, And I'm willing to lose that population if if they feel like leaving you know and i think that as a writer we have to you know and and also i'd say for anyone who's in the public space you have to be willing to openly say who you're here for and who you're not and be willing to let Mm. it go don't pretend don't say right you know i care about everyone i i I try you know i want to please everyone you're not going to but then also don't use that you're not going to as an excuse to never take responsibility or to look at, you know, what you owe. Such good advice. You're good. You're good. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished, and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. 
If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1. And that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm going to shift slightly more towards your writing process. And one of the things that I'm very curious about is, well, I guess I'm not sure. When did you turn this book in? Mediocre. Um, Early summer. Mm-hmm. So, so this was after sort of the the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. Yeah, we were finishing up edits. Okay, um, during that. Yeah. Okay, so then this question does still pertain. Um, I'm curious how this book maybe changed or didn't change in the wake of the sudden interest by many white people to talk about, understand, read your first book all of that. I'm curious if that had any bearing on the the outcome of this book. No, it really didn't. And I had to fight really hard for it not to, in all Mm -hmm. honesty. Um, There were, and it wasn't necessarily like, oh, the industry wanted me to change it, because I don't think that was the case. There were questions like, do you want to add the pandemic in here? Hmm. Um, Now we have these protests, do you want to add it to the foreword? Um, and then also like fans saying, oh, I can't wait to see how Joma tackles, mm. you know, the end of this election in the book. And, and no, I'm not going to do that. And the reason why I didn't want to do that is because I needed this book to accomplish what I set out, which was to get people to stop treating each incident like it stood on its own. Mm. And if I continued to say every incident has to be added in here, I would be writing this book forever. And then it would be relevant only to the last incident that I put in here. And so when I read through the book and trying to decide, should I put in a different forward? Should I, um, what I tried to think was, okay, yeah, none of us saw 2020 coming, right? Right. Okay. (laughs) But if you were to read this book and then say, and then there was massive incompetence to a pandemic. The election was a shit show. And and this white man threw a big baby fit and refused to leave. Would you be surprised? And I I read it. No, I wouldn't. So therefore I didn't feel like I needed to go back and add it. And I thought that it was actually better served not to, I think it, I think it underscored, you know, the path that we're on. Yeah. That makes total sense. Sort of in a similar vein. Um, so 
we talked a lot about the book. I want to talk about your process as a writer and kind of how you, how you work, how you create things. And I'm curious sort of where were you when you were writing this book? What were you reading and watching or listening to? What sort of stuff was kind of filling your, your world in the, as you're creating this work? I mean, it was a tough year personally to be writing this book. You know, it was really, um, and it was interesting. I, you know, I, I was researching a lot and reading mostly for the book. That's one of the things that kind of sucks about writing a book is you're literally <laughs> only reading things for the book. Um, and then, you know, our family was pretty heavily targeted by white supremacists last year. And we had to leave our home and it was just a big mess. And that was taking all of my extra brain space. And so sure. it was really like just kind of living in this terrorized white male supremacy space on all levels. And then of course, 2020, we had the murders of, you know, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. And, and it was like, oh, okay. So this is just life now. This is, this is it. Um, and part of what honestly, you know, was helping me was to be able to see the patterns and see the resilience um, to see the love that we had for each other, even in documenting these horrible things and the love that went into it and knowing that there was, you know, there's a sadness and a sweetness and knowing that there was, you know, that there were writers like W.E.B. Du Bois walking through the aftermath of Red Summer hmm. and documenting with all the love in his heart, the horror that he saw, right? Um, and knowing that that's part of what we do out of love. Right. And so that those were the sorts of things that kept me going. Um, and then, you know, I was all I would try to find things where I could try to relax that were completely separate. So, you know, my go to has always been British murder mysteries, just <laughs> sitting in that white on white crime, like just does it for me when I need to get my mind off of, you know, yeah. off of this. So that that helped a lot. But I honestly can say I, I would listen to audiobooks, but I couldn't actually pick up and read a book. My anxiety was too high um, for the entirety of working on a book. I've just now, like this last month, I've, I've finished like four books just because I wanted to read them. And it's just the most fascinating, wonderful thing in the world right now. I'm so excited about it. What books? Oh, gosh. Um, I read Minor Feelings, okay, um, which was fantastic. Right behind me on my bookshelf. <laughs> <laughs> um, I finally read Lindy's book. Oh, okay. Right. I needed, I read that the week of the election. I needed something to make me laugh. And oh my yeah. gosh, that book like just had me rolling over um, laughing. Um, I read um, the um, Book of Lost Saints by Daniel Jose Older. Which oh yeah. Fantastic. And I. Sorry, this isn't a pop quiz. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm remember the other ones. And, and right now I'm reading through Wow, No Thank You by Samantha Irby. Oh, so good. Yeah. So good. Yeah. She was on the podcast earlier this year, which was great, right? When the pandemic started, which was, it sort of was like probably a time capsule to go back and listen because it's like in a week when we're out of this, like April 1st mm -hmm. or whatever, what a nightmare. <laughs> um, and then also when you're writing sort of what do you, how, how many hours a day, how often are you writing? Are you listening to music? Do you have, and this is important, snacks or beverages are you in your home when there's not a pandemic or do you go somewhere like sort of what's your writing setup? Yeah. You know, I would say, um, 
my writing is like a lot of it's just negotiating with my brain. I have ADD. And so writing a book can be really, really difficult. And so a lot of it is, um, especially if I have deadlines I'm working around or just know I'm falling behind, it's 10 minutes of, um, it's 20 minutes of work, 10 minutes off over and over again. And I would do that for a whole day and just wow. kind of going in and out of it for probably about six to seven hours a day. Um, and I have to, I can't really do much more than that and sustain mm-hmm. a whole day of work. Like I can't do more than a 20 minute block. So even if I'm feeling fired up, I have to cut myself off because I know I'm going to run out of steam. Right. And then some days it's like, okay, I can't, I can't write. So I'm going to do something writing adjacent. And I would say for people whose brains really struggle with them, um, find a thing adjacent to the thing, you know? And so maybe like, well, I'm going to outline or I'm going to reorganize mm. my notes or do something to keep me in the work that maybe isn't typing on my computer. I also mm. handwrite a lot um, because like, it's all just a different way to get my brain to think I'm doing something different. So right. I had, you know, for, so you want to talk about race, probably six filled notebooks. I did all my outlines on paper. Wow. And then for the next book, I finally got a digital notepad, but it's still all handwritten. And the whole outline, every outline wow. was handwritten. All my notes were taken by hand um, and then reorganized and retyped. And even though it seems like that takes longer, I was able to focus on it. It didn't, by the time right. I got to writing, I wasn't like, oh, I can never type again. Um, I work from home, you know, I have two kids, you know, so um, a lot of it was done at night when they're asleep. You know, being a writer has completely changed my sleep schedule. I used to be a bed, in bed by 10. And now it's like, oh, the kids are asleep at 930. Now I'm going to start mm. really diving into the things I need quiet for. Um, but yeah, it's just, you know, I think that I hear about these writers who are like, oh, I get up and I have a coffee. And at 5 a.m. I sit and I write for six hours. I'm like, oh, fuck you. Like, man, <laughs> oh, you suck so hard. Like, don't, <gasps> don't do this to me. Um, and me, it's like, oh, I feed the kids. I'm late for this. I go to a meeting. I write for 15 minutes. Something happens. I run off. And then I find the time. And then I found a two-hour block. And I worked, you know, my right. 20 minutes on, 10 minutes off. And then I made dinner. And they went to bed. And then for another six hours, I tried to cram in, you know, right. more work. And that's kind of how that how that goes. So, yeah, it's – I want – I hope people recognize, like, there's this weird <laughs> – there's this mythology around writing that if you are a good writer and you're an inspired writer, that you're going to catch this like fever and you'll stay up all night and you'll finish a book or you'll write it in three weeks in a cabin somewhere. And I don't know who those people are, but I can't stand them. And (laughs) I think that it's really easy when you're struggling at writing to think that it's because you're a bad writer or because Mm. you're bad and it's a job like anything else. Right. And it's probably right. so much out of us. And some days you just hate it and that's fine. And yeah. I've learned to kind of just negotiate with myself. Like I'm one of my kids be like, okay, we know we don't want to do this, but what if okay, right. what, you <laughs> unplugged your computer and worked until your battery died? What if you just did that, you know, and like try to right. find all these different ways to right. keep going. Well, as someone who asks this question to pretty much everyone who comes on the show, I have learned that most people are not people who are in a cabin 
<laughs> and I mean, a, a lot of writers though do have have had the luxury of doing a retreat or something where they have had mm-hmm. the cabin time and they're like, it's so amazing. Mm-hmm. But their normal routine is like, I write on post-it notes. I write a whole book on post-it notes. And I'm like, that's incredible. But you did skip the most important question to me, which is snacks or beverages, oh. writing snacks or beverages. Um. <laughs> So uh, candy, I do subsist on candy. Yes. Like my partner was amazing at going to the store at any point in time of the day where I would mutter, oh, I'm out of candy. And he'd be like, <laughs> candy, come back with every type of candy I want. Um, but I don't normally eat a lot when I'm really writing. I, okay. I just when I'm focused, I'm not hungry, right. but the, the sugar kind of, I I'm very disconnected with my sense of hunger in like one of those unhealthy ways of mm. like, you know, where I'm like, Oh, I don't think I'm hungry. And then I'm suddenly like, Oh, I'm going to pass out, you know? Right. And, and yes, I, I totally, you know? Yes. And yes. so, you know, it's slightly, I don't know if it's more or less healthy to be like, well, if I ate a handful of gummy worms every 20, 30 minutes, I'd yeah. be okay. And then never have to ask if I'm hungry until the kids say they're hungry. <laughs> and, right, right, you know, right, right. Kind of, yeah. So for me, gummy candy, um, tons of sparkling water. Like when I'm writing, I just go through, you know, I had to get one of the, I had one of those machines where I would make my own eventually because the cans I recycle was ridiculous. Right, right. Oh my gosh. I feel like we could, I don't write, but if I did, we could write together because I have a family size bag of Swedish fish. Nice. my fave. And then I have a soda stream as well. And I drink my soda water all day, every day. Uh, <laughs> but you know, um, okay. I, this is mm, trying to decide if I want to, I do, I do want to ask you this. Um, I have, you know, I have a whole list of questions and mm-hmm. I sometimes I'm like, Oh, no, I want to do this. Um, <laughs> but I do want to know, I want to know because your book. So you want to talk about race what ended up being on every single anti-racist reading list, including the one that I put out before everyone else was putting out anti-racist reading lists. <laughs> I'm going to say that I was early. I'm curious what that feels like, felt like for you to all of a sudden have your book have this resurgence on the backs of some really terrible, terrible things. And how, if at all, were you able to kind of reckon with that? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it was so traumatic at first. That was so traumatic. No one, I don't think any Black writer wants their book to be sold out because Black people are being murdered in the street, right? Right. Um, And so that was a real, like, I was angry. And I was angry on multiple levels. One, like, oh, you know, why? Why this? Like, I am a good writer. Why is this the thing? Mm -hmm. But also like, oh, so you could have been talking about race this whole time and this is what it takes. Like, that made me so mad. Yeah. Um, and it made me mad too because I love my book. I think it's a great book. It is. Is this the book I think I'm going to turn to when trying to address a murder of Black people? No, right? right? Like, I would hope we would have been having the conversation to be at the point where it's like, cool, how do we dismantle police? Right. Like, that's, right. you know what I mean? And those were right. the books on the list, and it made me so angry um, because it, it felt like a misuse of my work. It felt like a disrespect mm. to the work of people like Audre Lorde and Angela Davis. You know, like it really right. did. Really, really angry at first. And then I had to realize like, oh, okay, well, this sad place is where people are. And I don't know why you're shocked. You know, like I had to be like, why? Yeah. Why are you shocked? And then I started hearing what, what helped pull me kind of somewhat out of that space where I still live in that space a yeah. lot of the time. But what helped was 
you know, a, a office would pick up my book and start to work through it. Mm. And then I would hear from a black woman in that office saying, I feel safer now than I've ever felt with this company. Mm. Right. Like, like that matters, you know, yeah. and, and, and it sucks for them that this is what it takes. Right. 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 Um, but that matters. And I'm not going to toss aside um, a black woman being able to get through her day better. Like it doesn't matter. I'm not going right. to talk aside the school finally addressing, you know, issues of racist bullying on their campus because it's not where we should be uh, because all those students of color matter, you know? And so that's kind of what I have to remember. Like I wrote this book because I knew we were in the beginning stages of this and it sucks that your own book is a reminder. Of that. Right. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah. You know, hopefully I will, hopefully it will be part of why maybe in the future we're not in that space. Right. Yeah. I had a similar um, experience because this podcast that I'd been doing for two years at the time, and, you know, I feature almost, almost exclusively, but not exclusively authors of color. All of a sudden I got 30,000 new Instagram followers and mm-hmm. I was like, I don't like this. Like I mm-hmm. feel gross and icky because this is the work that I've always done. Mm -hmm. And I'm still, you know, working on reckoning and trying to figure out how can I feel good about my show that I love, that Mm -hmm. I think is a good show. Like this Mm -hmm. is a fun podcast, you know? And so it's nice to hear you say kind of similar things too, because it's a tricky, it's a tricky thing. And it's all, you know, and also like, I'm proud of success that I've had Mm -hmm. and like navigating that too. And so, you know, I'm glad that I asked them. I'm glad I asked yeah, them. Yeah, no, my, my agent just called. It was funny because she would call every Wednesday to uh-huh. say where the book was on the New York Times bestseller list. And the first time she called, it was a very like, um, so you're number one. Because she knew me. She knew I was <laughs> right. right. And then and then it was like eventually like, hey, it's still in there. And it was 25 weeks mm. on the bestseller list. It just dropped off for the holiday books and stuff. And... <laughs> It was funny because she called, and I think for a while my agent has honestly just been using the Wednesday calls as an excuse to run through every email I've been ignoring. Right. Like, oh, here's where you are <laughs> now. By the way, can you, this, you know, and blah blah blah. Oh my gosh. And she called and was like, "I know it's awkward because it's a Wednesday, but um, you're not on the list." And I was just like, eh. "You know, like, yeah. <laughs> like that, none of this I'd expected anyway." So I was like, oh, okay. "Right." And then she's like, but, you know, I need you to fill out these emails and I need right. you to you know, get this back to me. It was so surreal, the whole thing. It was unexpected. It went through. It happened. Um, and I hope people got something out of it, you know. But right. it's a weird feeling to be like, oh, I, I, you know, I think writers dream of those sorts of weird things of being on the top of bestseller list. Right. And you're like, mm, eh, well, that happened. Right. And the right. circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I hope that it makes that that makes space for the new for this new book, Mediocre, because I do think that this book is a continuation in in a way, because if you've if you've had the conversations about race and you're starting to understand how to talk about race, you'll be able to receive a lot of the history and the stuff that you say, you know, is by design in Mediocre. So I do think like they they pair really well together. For folks who are like, I'm just learning about systemic racism. And then it's like, here's actual history to back it up. Like, mm-hmm. boom. Um, this is an important question that we must discuss, which is what is a word you can never spell correctly on the first try? Oh, my gosh. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, let me, so what I'm going to do is look at my phone, right, and mimic, because it's always, it's the IEs that get me mm. every time. Um, yes. Let's see. Oh, I can never spell nephew right. Oh. Ever, which is weird. Okay. Um, and I always have to go back and be like, why, why did I do that? Um, and, and and redo it. And then, um, I don't know. Usually, I will just say anything with an IE. Okay. <laughs> every time. Like, every time. And to the point now that, unfortunately, my phone doesn't know which way to spell it. Which I is, yeah. Phone, the so worse. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. Look, I'm a terrible speller, which is how this question came to be. Because I was like, mm-hmm. I, I bet authors also can't. Some of them can't spell too. And turns out none of you guys can spell. <laughs> oh, not at all. And I think if anything, knowing that we have editors, yeah. like, why even try to spell anything right ever again? Yeah. I get offended when people are like, you know, like you can tell me that I am being transphobic or ableist. And I'm like, thank you so much. But I swear to God, if you email me to tell me I spelled something wrong, I will go livid because I'm like, I am not an editor. Yeah. I don't care. You know what the word is because you knew and you wrote me. Yeah. You, you knew what? it was spelled wrong. You like, <laughs> leave me alone. Uh, truly. Yeah. I, I can relate to this. Um, so I just have, I guess, one, one, one-ish more question, which is for people who love mediocre, what would you recommend them to read? What else is sort of in conversation or in a similar vein, not necessarily the same exact topic, but co- sort of like works with it? Oh man, so many things do. Yes. Um, <laughs> let's see. Um, a couple of things. One, I would say um, Women, Race, and Class is a must read. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, this book is a bit dry, but I read um, White Identity Politics in okay. preparation for this book by by a sociology professor, Ashley Jardina. Um, and it is so like, if you were ever like, I wonder what white identity and white male identity looks like statistically, Hmm. um, that's a book that shows like, oh, what does it look like if, if you were to actually do the work of making studies and interviews around white male identity over the years? Um, and it was, it was really fascinating. And, and for me, like helped my work a lot, but also like crystallized it into like a, a numbers for that part of part of the brain, you know. Mm. I, I think a lot of times we think we can't quantify right. something right. like that, and and that book does, and it's really good. Oh, I love that. Okay, I lied. I actually have just one more question now. This is the last one. I promise. If you could have one person, dead or alive, read mediocre, who would it be? You know, I Eartha Kitt. I don't. Ooh. I think. She, because she would be like, look, I'm far beyond white men. But I would love to like commiserate with her because I feel like mm. I feel like the understanding of white male mediocrity was in her bones. Mm. You know? And and was constantly, she always had this look of disdain. It's like, oh, I still have to deal with this. Yeah. And you know, I think I would have loved to talk with her about it, to like have her look through it and be like, darling of course you know right, i know right. it you know <laughs> right oh my god i love that answer so good well thank you so much ijoma and thank you for writing and for your work and your words um the book is now 
as of the release of this episode out in the world. Mediocre, you can get it wherever you get your books. Please do get, gift it. I know a lot of you asked me what books should I get for my family members who are interested in talking about anti-racism. This might be a good book for, for your brother-in-law or your uncle or your aunt. So <laughs> I highly recommend, you guys know I love nonfiction and this one is totally in, it's readable, it's approachable, and it's full of information and tools to talk to other folks about all the shit that they are standing beside and behind and not even knowing or knowing and, you know, being toxic. So mediocre, check it out. Joma, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you all so much for listening. And thank you to Ijoma for being my guest. Remember, the Stacks Book Club pick for December is Citizen and American Lyric by Claudia Rankin. We will be discussing the book on December 30th with Darnell Moore. Make sure you're subscribed to the Stacks wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review the show. For more from the Stacks, follow us on social media at the Stacks Pod on Instagram and at the Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out the website, thestackspodcast.com. Today's episode was edited and produced by Sebastian Alcala. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and the theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. <laughs> <laughs>